Chapter 6, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 6, Part 2 The Theology of the Church and Its Opponents. 2. The central belief of Christians in one God, Creator, Ruler, Sustainer of the Universe, was contradictory to polytheism. One of their first tasks was to persuade the heathen that the rejection of a plurality of deities and of visible objects of worship was not atheism. In controversy with them, they appealed both to the works of nature and to man's inborn, spontaneous recognition of a supreme deity when his eyes were not blinded that they saw not. The man who knows himself shall know God. In the Christian conceptions of the deity we see a certain variation in teachers of different schools. Tertullian ascribes a bodily form to God, but then he understands by body any medium by which an existing thing manifests its existence. His body is not necessarily gross and palpable. At the other extreme are the Alexandrian theologians, whose great effort it was to keep the conception of God clear of the conditions of time and sense. Origen naturally would not hear of God's being described as, in any sense, corporeal. Unlike the heathen philosophers, Christian teachers almost invariably held that God had made the world, not from pre-existing formless matter, but from nothing, that he was the cause of matter as well as of form. Justin Martyr and Athenagoras are apparent rather than real exceptions. No one of the early writers has more vigorously attacked the pagan view than Tertullian, in his treatise against Hermogenes. Against the Gnostics, the doctors of the church earnestly contend that no inferior handicraft deity was the creator of the world, but the very same almighty power who redeemed it. And against the Gnostics also, it was maintained, that it was not in consequence of any overpowering necessity, but of his own will, of his own love, that God made the world. The pagan notion of a supreme destiny, or fate, to which even gods were subject, was rejected. God was the creator not only of the visible universe, but also of the invisible world, of angels and spirits, by whose agency he rules the world. But if the unity of the deity was carefully asserted by the early church against pagan polytheism and Gnostic dualism, no less earnestly was it maintained that in this unity is a trinity of persons equally divine. This one God, in three persons, is the object of Christian worship and contemplation. In the early ages it was sought to give adequate expression to the central blessing of Christianity, the union of the life of God with the life of man, and this end could only be attained by such a conception of the divine and human in Christ Jesus as should make clear both the perfect God and perfect man in Christ, and this without confusion of persons. Hence the Ebionite conception of Christ as a being essentially human, though filled with the Spirit of God, and even in wondrous wise begotten of the Spirit, was rejected as altogether short of the truth. Equally inadequate was the conception of a being essentially divine, seemingly appearing in human form, or seemingly united with the man Jesus. All conceptions, in a word, were rejected which seemed to endanger either the true divinity of the Son of God, or the true humanity of the Son of Man, or the true union of God and man, in one Christ. If it is in Christ that the one real atonement is made between God and man, Faith must contemplate in him at once God with us, and the true and perfect man. This it was which the church of the early ages set itself to express in its teaching. The earliest pagan witness testifies expressly that Christians sang a hymn to Christ as God. 
Clement of Rome, Barnabas, Ignatius, without special exactness of expression, assert the transcendent dignity of the person of the Son. The word logos, already used by Philo to designate both the reason and the creative utterance of God, was applied by St. John to the incarnate Son, and after him by Justin Martyr and other apologists. The logos is, in the usage of the latter, the deity in Christ, as distinct from his human nature. The Logos existed with the Father at first only potentially, but was brought into actual existence before the creation of the world, and with a view to that creation. God manifests Himself in Him, just as human reason is manifested in the utterance of an articulate word. The word is, in this mode of conception, subordinate. Irenaeus, on the other hand, deprecates as over-subtle all speculation on the manner in which the Son was produced from the being of the Father, while holding fast the doctrine of his divinity. As regards the Holy Spirit, difficulties arose from the attempt to explain to the understanding his essence and relation to the Father. Some, as Theophilus, made the Logos coordinate with the wisdom or Holy Spirit of God. Some, as Justin, seemed to make little distinction between Logos and Spirit. Logos, Spirit, Power seem almost identical terms. Several teachers deviated from the Catholic doctrine of the Holy Trinity, tending towards one of the two extremes. Either, in their anxiety to preserve the unity of God, they identified the Father and the Son, or they made the Son, however exalted, something less than God. The first, starting from the cardinal truth of the divine unity, contended that the advocates of a trinity preached two or three gods, and called themselves advocates of the monarchy of the deity. This monarchian tendency developed itself in different directions. One party held that the supreme being simply worked upon or influenced the man Christ. This opinion had several adherents. Theodotus was the first who, since the days of the Ebionites, taught that the Lord was mere man, for which heresy he was excommunicated by Victor, bishop of Rome. The same view is maintained by another Theodotus, a money-changer, and also by Artemon, who further maintained that his view was that of the primitive church. In this class must also probably be included those whom Epiphanius calls Alogi, who rejected the whole doctrine of the Logos. But the most conspicuous of those who maintain this heresy is Paul of Samosata, the worldly splendor-loving bishop of Antioch in Syria. He denied that the Son of God came down from heaven, and asserted that Christ was a mere natural man, like other men. God's Logos and God's Spirit remained always in God, just as a man's reason or discourse remains in his own heart, and the Son was no distinct substance or person, me enai enupostaton, but in God himself. The Logos came and dwelt in Jesus, who was a man, but the divine wisdom dwelt in him, not in essence, but as a quality. He denied that his doctrine involved the suffering of God the Father, saying that the word alone wrought upon Christ, and ascended again to the Father. Paul was deposed by a synod held at Antioch in the year 269, but his party, under the name of Paulianists or Samostanians, maintained itself into the fourth century. Others, again, altogether obliterated the distinction between the Father and the Son. The first who became conspicuous by the advocacy of this confusion was Praxeus, who came from Asia Minor to Rome in the days of Eleutherus and Victor, and combated Montanist views with great success. His doctrine of the person of Christ is said to have found considerable acceptance in the imperial city. Tertullian says of him, with characteristic vigor, that he accomplished two tasks for the devil. He banished prophecy and introduced heresy. He put to flight the paraclete and crucified the father. 
he seems to have taught that the Father and the Son were one person, the former in a spiritual state of existence, the latter in the flesh. It follows that the Father must have suffered for us, whence those who held this opinion received the name of Patripassians. Similar views were propounded by Neoetus, a native of Smyrna, where he was excommunicated for his heresy about the year 200. He, if we may trust the accounts of his opponents, held that the one God and Father, the Maker of the universe, appears and disappears when he will and as he will. One and the same person is visible and invisible, begotten and unbegotten, unbegotten from the beginning, begotten when he willed to be born of a virgin, in his own nature incapable of suffering and death, and again of his own free will capable of suffering and death, even the death of the cross. The same person bears the name of father or son, as circumstances require. Noetus's doctrine was propagated in Rome by his disciple Epigonus, who there won over Cleomenes, and in Rome it found its most able and conspicuous opponent in Hippolytus. This distinguished teacher held the person of the Son to be distinct from the person of the Father, but, in order to preserve the primordial unity of the Deity, he maintained that Christ must be described as a begotten God, Theos Heunetos. The Logos has, no doubt, a distinct personality, but he first became a person by proceeding forth from God the Father as his firstborn, through whom all things were made. Hippolytus himself, in fact, regarded the Son as a being created simply by the will of the Father. Against this view, Zephyrinus, then bishop of Rome, declared that he at least acknowledged only one God. He believed Christ, the incarnate Son of God, to be not another God distinct from the Father, but in his divine being or substance the same with God the Father. Zephyrinus had probably no intention of denying the personality of the Son, but simply wished to protest against what he considered the ditheism of Hippolytus. The latter, however, retorted upon him fiercely, and when Zephyrinus's successor in the bishopric, Callistus, entered the list against him, he attacked him with still greater bitterness, a bitterness intensified probably by circumstances which are very imperfectly known to us. Making allowance for the evident bias of Hippolytus, our only authority on this matter, it seems probable that Callistus attempted to maintain the unity of substance in the deity against Hippolytus, while protesting against the confusion of persons introduced by Noetus and others. For while Rome was yet agitated by the opinions of Noetus, a new form of error had found its way thither, the modalism of Sibelius. It is uncertain whether this remarkable person sprang from Libya or from Italy. It is certain that in the episcopate of Zephyrinus he was at Rome, where he was won over to the opinions of Cleomenes, which he developed after his own fashion. When Callistus, who had previously seemed to encourage him, became bishop, he disowned Sibelius, and it was perhaps for this reason that the latter left Rome for the east, and became a presbyter at Ptolemaeus, where his success induced Dionysius of Alexandria to write a treatise against him. His system probably derived something from the same Gnostic source which influenced the Clementine homilies. The monad, he says, becomes by extension a triad. God extends, and again contracts himself. As there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, so the Father always remains the same, but is extended into Son and Spirit. The same God, remaining one in substance, transforms himself according to the several needs which arise, and now addresses us as Father, now as Son, now as Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament he legislated as Father, in the New he became man as Son, as Holy Spirit he descended upon the Apostles. And he compared the Deity to the Son, 
which though always remaining one substance, has three energies or modes of manifestation. First, his actual mass or disk. Second, that which causes light. Third, that which causes heat. In the same class with Noetus and Sabellius may be placed Beryllus of Bostra, whose leading tenet was that the sun before his incarnation had no defined personal existence. Beryllus, however, was convinced of his error by the arguments of Origen. In the working out of the human expression of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the teaching of Origen is of great importance. With him, God is the one real existence, the ground of all the phenomena of the universe. But it is impossible to conceive God, the supreme energy, resting in idleness and immobility. He must therefore exert his ceaseless energy in creative work, and he must reveal himself. The link between the eternal God and the creation is the sun, the very image of his substance. The word wisdom, applied to him in the older writings, denotes the totality of the primal thoughts, which are the eternal forms of the universe, the source of which is the sun. The expression logos denotes the revelation and communication of these same thoughts which are contained in the divine wisdom. But we must not attribute all this to the will of the Father only, for the will of God is itself impersonated in the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father, but we must not say that a portion of the substance of the Father is transformed into the Son, or that He was created out of nothing by the Father. There was never a time in which God was not the Father of the Son. With God all things are present. The Son is a consubstantial emanation from the glory of the Father. Yet is this identity of substance a conditional one. For the Father alone is the absolute God. In this respect, the Son is inferior to the Father. The Father, he said, is greater than I. The Father, therefore, alone is the proper object of worship. Origen even sometimes speaks of the Son as created or fashioned. The subordination of the Son shows itself in his work. The Son does the same as the Father, but the impulse comes from the Father. He is the instrument by which the Father works. The Holy Spirit is made through the Son, for all things were made through Him. He is the first and chiefest being made by the Father through the Son, and subordinate to the Son as the Son to the Father. He it is who sanctifies the elect people of God. In Origen's doctrine of the Holy Trinity, therefore, there is clearly subordinationism. In teaching the consubstantiality of the Son, Origen is the forerunner of Athanasius. When he teaches subordinationism, he may be appealed to by the Arians. In the early days of the Church, few Latin writers appear as theologians. Tertullian, however, is a vehement opponent of Partipassianism. He is himself a decided subordinationist, considering the Father as the whole substance of the Godhead, and the Son as a portion of, or effluence from him. The Holy Spirit, in Tertullian's scheme, occupies the same subordinate position as in Origen's. How widespread was the Patripassian theory is shown by the fact that the poet Commodian held it, apparently without any consciousness that he had deviated from the faith of the Church. 4. Many, perhaps most, of the early Christians regarded the second coming of Christ and his final victory over all that opposed as rapidly approaching, and to most of these the coming of the Lord presented itself in the form of Chiliasm, the expectation of a thousand-year reign of the Redeemer, with his risen and glorified saints upon earth as a preparation for the final consummation of all things. Probably the contest against Gnosticism tended to strengthen the belief in a material aspect of the kingdom of God which the Gnostics denied. The epistle of Barnabas first lays it down, that as one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, the first six thousand years of the world's existence are as the six days of creation, 
and the seventh period is to be a thousand years of sabbatic peace and rest. Justin Martyr expects Christ to reign a thousand years in Jerusalem. The materialistic and sensuous view of the reign of Christ appears in the description of the blessings of the saints quoted from Papias by Irenaeus. Irenaeus himself derives his imagery from such passages as those which speak of the wolf dwelling with the lamb, of the fruit of the vine to be drunk in the Father's kingdom, of the fashion of this world passing away. Tertullian, as a Montanist, was of course extremely emphatic in his belief of the speedy coming of the Lord. At the end of the second century these opinions, when they were propagated at Rome by Serinthus, were strongly opposed by Caius the Presbyter. In Alexandria they met still more vigorous opposition, and under the great influence of Origen, came to be regarded as at any rate fanatical, if not heretical. End of chapter 6, part 2